Amen. Please be seated. If you have your Bibles, you can turn in them to Luke chapter 7. We are going to be reading verses 36 to 50. If you don't have a Bible, there's pew Bibles. You're more than welcome to, to use one of those. And actually, if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take it home. We'd love for you to have a Bible if you don't have a Bible. We also have the text printed in your worship guide beginning on page 8. Well, once again, welcome. My name is Jeff Wilkins. I'm one of the pastors here. And I, I want to re-emphasize what Keaton said earlier this morning, that if you're new to Zion and you're just sort of interested in hearing a little bit about what's going on at Zion, I would invite you, come have lunch with me. What, is it next week? I can't remember what the date is, but I think it's next week. I'd love to have lunch with you. It'll be after Sunday school, which is in the next hour. Um, I think we'll make lunch. I think Kathy and me will make lunch, and so it'll be good. And we would love to have you join us, and, uh, and I'll answer whatever questions you have, and I'll make up answers to the questions I don't know the answers to. So with that, let's think for a minute about this passage. And I want to do this, uh, I want to frame it by um, telling you about something that I love. One of my favorite stories is Les Mis, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, however you say it. Um, it's a great story. Um, it's, if you're not into really long books with lots of French names, then I would recommend seeing the movie starring Jeffrey um, Rush and Liam Neeson. It's spectacular. It's awesome. It's one of those few movies that I could show to my youth group and not have to write apology notes to parents afterwards. It's that good. For those of you who don't know the story, it's set in early 19th century France. And it's a story about two men, Jean Valjean and Inspector Jarvaux. Jean Valjean is an ex-con. He has served 19 years of hard labor for stealing a loaf of bread to feed his family. As the movie begins, Valjean has just been released from prison, which you might think would have been a really great day in Valjean's life, but it was anything but that. Valjean puts it like this. He says, after 19 years, and now the real punishment begins. You see, much like today, ex-cons in 19th century France weren't welcomed back into French society with outstretched arms. They were social pariahs. They were outcasts. They were the unforgiven. And as a result, Valjean walks out of prison a bitter, hardened, and hopeless man. Inspector Javert is exactly the opposite of Valjean. He, he's a man of the law. For a year or so, he had been at the same prison as Valjean, but not as a prisoner, rather as a prison guard. And since then, he had been working his way up the ladder. At the, this point in the story, Valjean, has, or Valjean and Jarvaux has been promoted to 
police inspector. Unlike Valjean, he is full of ambition and full of self-confidence. What you have here are two men who couldn't be more different from one another. A hardened criminal and a righteous enforcer of the law. But not only are these two men very different, but so are the way that they respond to grace. You see, Les Mis is really a story about grace. In this story, both Valjean and Jovert experience grace. Not long after Valjean is released from prison, he is captured red-handed with a knapsack full of silver that he stole from a Catholic priest. In 19th century France, they had a two-strikes-and-you're-out policy, which meant this. It meant that if you committed one crime after going to prison, you went back to prison for life. No exceptions. Well, Valjean is captured, and he's brought back to face the priest and life in prison. But instead of being outed and imprisoned, the priest hands Valjean whew, even more of his silver. And he says this. He says, Jean Valjean, my brother, you, are no, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver I have bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. And from that moment on, Valjean lives a transformed life. Jarvaux, on the other hand, knows that Valjean is an ex-con. And he spends his entire life chasing him so that he can put him back into prison. Toward the end of the movie, Javert falls into the hands of Valjean. Valjean throws him up against the wall and he pulls his gun. Javert knows that he is dead. But instead of executing Javert and freeing himself from the threat of life in prison, Valjean spares Javert's life and he lets him go. How do you think Javert responds to the grace of Valjean? He simply can't take it. It destroys him. He takes his own life because he can't bear the grace. Two men who both experience grace one man transformed from the inside out. One man so tormented that he takes his life. That raises a couple of questions, doesn't it? One, why? Why? Why do why the two diametrically opposed reactions to grace? But there's a second question that raises who do you more identify with? Javert or Valjean? 
if you're like me, you can't deny it. While I sometimes see Valjean, I more often than not see Jovert. And the question I want us to think about this morning is how can we grow in our appreciation, in our enjoyment of God's grace to us, and as a consequence, be more transformed by that grace? That's the question before us this morning. With that set up, let's read God's word. This is Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Would you pray with me? Father, Son in spirit. There's nothing more we need this morning than to hear your voice, than to experience your presence, particularly your grace. Lord, like the Father who brought his Son to you to be healed, we believe, help us overcome our unbelief. Give us faith. Teach us. Convict us. Comfort us. 
encourage us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Luke tells us in Luke 7 that Jesus is invited to a dinner party hosted by Simon, who is a Pharisee. Pharisees were the kind of folks who would come to church like you and me. They're religiously conservative folks. Jesus wasn't the only guest. Simon had invited some of his other friends over as well. Not only that, but in first century Palestine, it was also common for uninvited folks to show up at the party. They would show up, they would stand against the wall, and they would watch everything that happened. And, and when, the, when the meal was over, if there were any leftovers, the host would give it to those guests, sort of as a display of his piety and generosity. Dinner time in the ancient Near East was their version of reality TV. Any townsperson could wander into the party and be a fly on the wall. As Jesus, Simon, and the other guests are reclining at the dinner table, a woman, a woman who Luke calls a sinner, approaches Jesus. Most commentators believe that Luke's vagueness is not only intentional, but it's his way of discreetly saying this woman is a prostitute. And what Luke tells us in verse 38 is that as she comes up behind Jesus to anoint him, she goes to pieces. She has an emotional breakdown. She melts into a puddle of tears. And Luke tells us that as she stood there, her tears began to fall upon Jesus' feet and wetting them. So what does she do? She falls down on her knees and she takes down her hair, which no reputable would do, woman would do in that day. And she begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. And then we're told she begins to kiss his feet. And if that's not enough, she takes out this alabaster jar of perfume, which was both very costly and a non-negotiable for a woman who was in her line of business. You see, they didn't have showers back in those days. And so perfume was used to, to beautify yourself to make yourself attractive and desirable, and also for identification purposes, so that when somebody walked by, they, they might catch a whiff, and they would know who you are and what you do. And what Luke tells us here is that this woman took her perfume, and she pours it all over Jesus' feet. Again, it raises some questions, doesn't it? Why? Why does this woman have an emotional breakdown when she comes up behind Jesus? And why doesn't Simon the Pharisee react the same way? 
The fact is, while this woman is going to pieces in the presence of Jesus, Simon is both rude and dismissive. In those days, it was customary that when people came over to your house for dinner, you would, at the very least, give them some water so that they could wash their feet. This, this, Jesus lived in a world that didn't have asphalt roads. Jesus lived in a world of dirt roads, and these roads weren't just trafficked by people, but they were trafficked by donkeys and horses and oxen and dogs. And what that meant is that when people, when people walked around that, their feet were absolutely filthy, gross. And it was just a common courtesy that if you were to come over to my house, I would provide you with some water so you could clean yourself up before dinner. But according to verse 44, Simon doesn't give Jesus any water with which to wash his feet. It's an affront. It's unbelievably rude. But more than rude, Simon the Pharisee is also dismissive. Luke tells us that when Simon saw what was happening, when he saw this woman walk up behind Jesus, begin weeping, fall to her knees, and begin to wipe and kiss his feet, Simon said this to himself. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon's logic worked like this. The jury was out on Jesus. He seemed like a pretty decent guy. He, he, he seemed kind of like a righteous guy. So the only reason that he would let this woman touch him or even come near him was that he didn't know that she was a prostitute. And that, in Simon's eyes, eliminated the possibility that Jesus was a prophet. In other words, Simon thought if Jesus really is a prophet, he would know what this woman does, that she is filthy. It never occurred to him that Jesus might know exactly who she was and yet let her touch him. On the one hand, this woman goes to pieces in Jesus' presence. On the other, Simon is both rude and dismissive. Again, why? Why do these two people react so differently to the same person? Well, Jesus answers our question for us by telling a story. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. For what it's worth, a denarii was one day's wages. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, which meant that both men were in a world of trouble. In those days, you couldn't just declare bankruptcy, wipe the slate clean, and start over. Instead, if a money lender wanted he could have you thrown into prison where you would have to work off your debt. It didn't matter if you owed 50 denarii or 500 denarii. If you didn't have the money, you were headed to prison. But this moneylender in Jesus' story didn't 
But yeah, this moneylender in Jesus' story didn't have the debtors thrown into prison, did he? Instead, according to verse 42, he cancels their debts and he sets them free. Jesus tells the story and then he looks at Simon and he says, So Simon, which of these two guys will love this moneylender more? Well, Simon's no dummy. He's like the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said, you've judged rightly. And then Luke says, then turning toward the woman, Jesus, Jesus says to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loves much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Beloved, there's the answer to the question. The question about both the hardening and the transforming power of grace. Jesus is like a magnet. I don't know if you've ever gotten magnets, a couple magnets, and you, and, you, and you put them together. Depending upon their polarity, they either are attracted to each other and they stick together, or you try to push them together and they push themselves apart. They're repelled from one another. Well, Jesus is the exact same way. Jesus either draws people to himself or he repels them. In Les Mis, it wasn't Jesus per se, it was grace. Valjean was drawn to it and transformed by it. Jovert was repelled by it and was ultimately destroyed in the process. In our passage, the woman is drawn to Jesus. Simon is repelled by Jesus. Jesus explains in verse 47, Therefore I tell you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loves much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Why is the woman drawn to Jesus while Simon is repelled by Jesus? Well, reason number one, this woman knows that she's a sinner. She is a big sinner, but Simon... Simon thinks he's a little sinner. Think about this woman. We we don't really know that much about her, except that she's more than likely a prostitute. And what that means is that she is a home wrecker. She's a covenant breaker. We know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, because of the way that Simon responds to her presence, that she is a social and religious pariah. Just look at what Simon thinks about her. And perhaps most importantly, she knows it. 
A number of years ago, my family and I lived in downtown Raleigh, North Carolina, in what could be called a transitional neighborhood. What that means is that we had a pimp and a prostitute who worked our corner that was about 100 yards from our front door. And I'll be honest with you, there were days when I walked out my front door and I saw Mac and Linda work in the corner that I wanted to scream, get out of my neighborhood! But then there were other times that it occurred to me that when Linda was a little girl, like my girls were at that time, she didn't think, man, when I grow up, I want to sell my body. We got to know Mac and Linda. And in one of our last conversations, I was talking to him. And I said, hey guys, I just want you to know, I know what you do. I don't like it. Linda looked at me and she said, I don't like it either. Now, you can call Linda a liar, but I think there was some truth in those words that she spoke to me that day. Linda is like this woman in this story. We don't know how either of these women ended up the way they did, but What we do know is that they both knew brokenness. They both knew fear. They both knew shame. They both knew guilt. And then there's Simon, who Luke tells us is a Pharisee. Pharisees, for what's worth, had only been around at this time for about 200 years. Um, They grew up as a reaction to all of the political and religious corruption of the day. And and the Pharisees, the Pharisees were sort of the big shots in town. They were certainly the big shots in the synagogues. And they believed that if they could sufficiently separate themselves from the corruption that surrounded them, Their separation and their obedience would actually trigger the return of God to Israel where he would set up his kingdom and where he would place the Pharisees at the center. And while no Pharisee would deny that he was a sinner and no Pharisee would deny that he needed God's gracious forgiveness the Pharisees lived with a sense of moral superiority and self-righteousness. And that's exactly what you see in this passage. The woman was a big sinner and she knew it, but Simon was convinced he wasn't. But that's not all. There is a second essential reason why this woman was drawn to Jesus But Simon was repelled. Think about it for a minute. What do you think would make 
this woman, probably a prostitute, walk in to the house of a Pharisee where a bunch of Pharisees were gathered around a table. What do you think would make her walk into a room where she knew she was going to be judged? She knew she was going to be ostracized. She knew she was going to be humiliated. According to one pastor, this woman could have actually been killed for walking up behind Jesus. What would it, what would make this woman be willing to risk her very life to get near to Jesus? You know it had to be hard. You know it had to be humiliating. She had to know that everyone in that room was thinking to themselves, what is this woman doing here? Well, let's talk about you for a minute. What would it make, what would make you willing to admit the very darkest thing about your heart? What would it take for you to own your sin, your brokenness, your rebellion, your apathy? What would it take? There's only one thing. It's knowing that at the end of the day, you can't be hurt by your confession. It's, it's only knowing that at the end of the day, God's grace is sufficient for you in your weakness. It's only at the end of the day knowing that you were loved with a love that will never let you go. It is knowing at the end of the day that you are accepted and you are forgiven. Beloved, that's what drew this woman to Jesus. She didn't just know that she was a sinner, although she definitely knew she was. She also knew that Jesus loved her and accepted her even in her sinful state. Look at verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. And if that's all that Jesus had to say, we would be left thinking that our love of God comes before God's love and forgiveness for us. But look at the rest of the verse. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? He is saying that his love for us as sinners is what transforms our hearts and our lives. This is the magnetic power of Christ Jesus. 
This is the transforming power of grace, the love of God in Jesus. And it gets even better. Jesus' love isn't ignorant or uninformed. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about me. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And yet, he loves you anyway. In spite of yourself and in spite of your sin. This is how the Apostle John puts it in 1 John. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Or as we confessed earlier, God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. What does that have to do with you? Well, let me ask you a question. How are you responding to the grace of God in Christ Jesus? What this passage teaches us is that you are either moving toward him or you are moving away from him. You are either feeling defensive and offended or you see the sinfulness of your sin and the sufficiency of your Savior. And if you see your sin and the sufficiency of your Savior, there will be love. There will be joy. There will be worship. There will be adoration. As one commentator put it for Luke, true faith is what happens when someone looks at Jesus and discovers God's forgiveness. And the sign and proof of faith is love. Beloved, when was the last time you really experienced the love of Jesus? When was the last time you wept tears of joy? When was the last time that it dawned on you, this is amazing? It's too good to be true that God could love a person like me. When was the last time? Why, why don't we? And I include myself in that we. Why don't we weep tears of joy? It's one of two things. Number one, either we don't see the sin in our lives. It's not that it's not there, because it is. But we live in denial. And we need to take a good long, hard look at our hearts. Or, number two, we aren't looking at Jesus. 
Which is it for you? Folks, some of us, and I count myself among this group, are self-righteous. We're sanctimonious. We live comparatively good moral lives. And as a result, we tend to think that we don't really need Jesus all that much. Certainly not as much as my wife <laughs> or my kids or my neighbor or my coworker or my classmate or whomever. Others of us, and I have this too, have a condemning conscience that cripples us, filling us with fear and doubt and insecurity that God's grace could never meet my need. And here's the thing. Both people need the same thing. We both need to look at Jesus. We both need to look at the cross. We both need to rediscover his love and his grace and his mercy for sinners. Beloved, look at Jesus. Look at the cross. Look at this table. What do you see? Do you see the blood-stained, incarnate, messianic grace of Jesus for sinners? What will happen when you do? Jesus will expose who you are. And that's not fun. You will see the idols of your heart come bubbling up. But he will also reveal all he is for you. And the result, you will be transformed more and more from the inside out into what Jesus created and redeemed you to be. You'll be transformed more and more into the image of our Lord Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the hope of the gospel. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Spirit, I beg you, work in our hearts. Please don't let us leave this room the same way in which we arrived. Please, Lord, convict us of our sin. Convict us of our apathy. Convict us of our selfishness. Convict us of our self-righteousness. Convict us of our faithlessness. But more importantly, Lord, convict us of your grace and your love and your mercy and your forgiveness. Lord, persuade us that you will never leave us or forsake us because you've lived and died for us. 
You've been raised for us. That you will complete the good work that you have begun in us in the day of the Lord Jesus. Lord, don't leave us as we are. Thank you that we know because of what we see in Jesus that you are. We also pray, Lord, as we come to this table this morning that you would meet us there, that this would not be an empty ritual, a going through the motions, but that we would taste and see that you are good. Feed us, Lord. Take this bread Take this wine and do with it what only you can do. Feed our souls. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.